this week's Monday afternoon lecture, and it's a real pleasure to, to welcome Neil Mercer here. Um, and as you can see, there's a, a degree of enthusiasm by the size of the turnout, which we're delighted about. Um, Neil is probably well known to you all at the University of Cambridge. Uh, surprisingly, given his youthful appearance, retiring next year, um, but uh, has a long, long history of uh, work in language and education, going back to times when you were working with Douglas Barnes. Aye. Um, back in Leeds, wasn't it? Yes, that's yeah. right. Um, so a long, long history that can be traced through the literature and is traced through the literature by, by many of us on a regular occasion. So it's a delight to welcome you here, and thank you for Thanks coming. very much, Harry. Yeah, it's great to be here. In fact, I seem to be coming here all the time. Um, it's like my Cumbrian neighbour once said, he said, I, I go there that often, you could almost say I'm a computer. So, <laughs> um, and as Harry says, it's a topic that, that is not very far away from my long-term interests. Uh, it's just kind of morphed into something slightly different uh, in this, this presentation. Um, and I hope it'll be, uh, bec become, become clear. I know some of you have seen the article that I wrote in Education Psychologist, but I'm guessing that others won't have, so I'm not assuming too much in that respect. Um, the theme, really, um, that's behind this, this title is, is, is one of moving our perception of how people think and learn from a very individualistic conception to one that is more intrinsically social. And my feeling is that in the last 20 years, a number of fields have converged to enable us to say with much more confidence that the, that the basis of human thinking, human cognition, and in fact human behavior in general, is, is essentially collective. And, and so I'll try and explain that. Um, because as I say, I think there's been this, this, this useful convergence, which I don't think has been fully achieved yet. And, and I think some of these lines have to kind of still be joined up a bit. But I think it's very exciting and interesting and practically useful from an educational point of view. I did psychology as my first degree. And I remember um, how a topic like learning was, was, was dealt and, and cognition was dealt with at that time. And surprisingly, uh, given as Harry says how old I am, um, it, hasn't, it didn't really change that much over a, a long period. Um, and despite some sort of um, radical uh, attempts to shift it, uh, I think in many ways psychology still, mainstream psychology still hangs on to a lot of these, these sort of things. Um, one is that thinking only happens in individuals' heads. That's, that's what thinking's about. Um, second, that, that learning is an individual pursuit. Um, and likewise, that memory is an individual attribute. This is, consequently, means that, that experimental psychologists have typically studied learning by isolating individuals from social interference. You know, the archetypal kind of experiment back in the, you know, in, in the old days would, would have been to get somebody in a laboratory on their own, make sure there's nobody else having anything to do with them, um, give them something to learn, perhaps doing something like making a loud noise in their ear at the same time to see if you know, it affected how well they remembered, and then you would see whether they remembered it or not. Um, there was a sort of assumption that that, that, that was the only true way of, of, of studying learning um, and remembering, was, was it by isolating the individual. Um, and at the level of developmental psychology, the sort of Piagetian approach that I was, was, was taught, and one which is, I mean, it's, it's got a lot of strength, I'm not saying we should ditch it, but, but it did tend to encourage people, not only psychology students, but teachers, trainee teachers, to believe that cognitive development happens through individuals trying to make sense of the world. You know, this idea of the child as the lone scientist, that they sort of go out there and things happen, you know, things fall over and they notice, or, you know, something happens to them, and, and in this way they grow 
gradually make sense of the world. Um, and although that's a bit of a caricature, of, of, of quite a caricature of what Piaget said, there was, there was this feeling that that was the essence of, of how children really developed. And it led to some approaches in education like a highly progressive kind of approach uh, in which the teacher was meant to stay out their way because you might get in the way of this sense making. You know, and you do more harm than good. And putting words into children's mouths was something that you had to avoid uh, because you, you know, just, you just learn by, by discovery. And um, I, I remember, you know, back at Leicester when I was um, a PhD student there that in, in the, in the in, I was in psychology but in education in the in primary teacher training um, my, my, my wife as she is now was doing it and she said they'd gone into a room and to tell about primary science and the way they were taught as trainee teachers was they were given a whole lot of boxes and tins and, thought, and told to play with them for an hour or two you know and um, I think there was this idea that the teacher was more of a, a problem, a social influence was more of a problem than a help. Um, and also there was a strong feeling that, that cultural variation was, was the essence of culture. Um, and, and it affected the content of what people learn, but people were all essentially learning the same way. And culture was, was, was treated in psychology as cross-cultural difference, really. It wasn't treated as, as culture, as, as knowledge, you know, that we all have culture, if you like, even if you're not comparing it with any other people's experience. So, um, though that was the way that it was defined in, in, in psychology. Even in evolutionary studies as well, there was this strong belief in the individual. The survival unit was the individual. The, you know, the, the Dawkins, the selfish gene. It was this idea that individuals were the ones that were selected to survive. And therefore, that was the, the unit that you, you, you took account of. It was all to do with individual genetics because, you know, that was, that was how you, you, it, an individual procreating would be the one, the more successful line. Um, and so it was very much again focused on this, this individualistic, selfish kind of notion. Um, but in fact, um, ideas started to shift. Um, they started to shift really in the 1990s, I think to make people question whether this was really the whole picture. And, and ironically, given, given this emphasis on high individualism in evolutionary studies, one of the areas where it started to shift um, was, was in evolutionary studies, evolutionary psychology and evolutionary anthropology, um, here uh, at Oxford as much as uh, other places. Um, so you actually got people like Robin Dunbar coming out with statements and claims like that what makes human thinking distinctive is that we've evolved with a social brain designed to enable us to live in a complex society. And this was really a shift because it was suggesting that we weren't the dominant species just because we have massive computing power in our brains that, you know, that is massively better than any other animals. Um, it was suggesting that it was because we'd evolved with a capacity to operate in the social settings and, and organisations of a complexity that are completely impossible for any other social animals. I mean, you know, this, for example, you know, you don't get bees doing this kind of stuff. And uh, they don't need to, but they can't anyway. And you don't even get the chimps and the, you know, the other higher apes doing anything remotely like this. Um, and they were suggesting that, 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 that this is because the brain had evolved with this capacity to make sense of complex social interactions. And that was quite a shift um, and, and gained a lot of interest uh, in its own field and started to kind of come out to other ones. Um, the evidence for it was circumstantial and, and rhetorical more than anything, but it was quite a, an interesting line of, of reasoning. Oddly though, um, it was still tended to be used to explain the competitive success of individuals. They were still using this unit of survival as the individual. 
Um, so that Bus, for example, if you read uh, his stuff, he, you know, he will say, oh, it's the, 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 the per and it's usually the man, um, the, it's the person who can most of all suss out what other people are thinking and read the complex relationships that are going on in a community who will best be able to survive, uh, enable the survival of his, of his children. Um, and and, and th this is what the social brain is. It's, it's, it's this capacity for, for, for reading other people and to, if, if you like, second-guessing them. So ironically, having made this shift um, towards a more social conception of, of, of why we are successful, it was being used entirely still to, in, in, to describe a quality of individual cognition that have been able to almost play the game against other people so that your own individual uh, offspring survive best. Well, this clearly isn't the way society works. I mean, you know, we just don't operate entirely like that. No doubt some people do, but it isn't the only way that it works. Even the most powerful individuals tend to not be able to do it just on their own and not just in relation to their own individual uh, families and whatever. And as Mary Midgley has suggested, that survival is it, very much criticising the Dawkins approach and these kind of approaches like bus, saying that survival isn't just a matter of individuality and, and, and down to individual success or capabilities. We actually survive by cooperation and it's groups of people who survive. They may well be related groups genetically, or at least partly so, but, but, but not necessarily. And, and certainly the way they survive is, is not by simply being selfish and individualistic, but by, by actually putting together their capabilities um, in a way that allows them to survive as a group. And therefore the individuals in that group are the ones who inherit the future uh, through their offspring. And so she's, she's making this claim for, for a much more cooperative notion of survival. And so, I, having read these things, I, I sort of came to these in, in about, oh I don't know, it must have been about four years ago or something. And, um, and I could see that sort of resonance with some of the things that, that had been operating in, in <coughs> sociocultural research in psychology and education, the kind of stuff that Harry's written a lot about, um, you know, in his books about Vygotsky. And, um, and it seemed to me there was some, as I say, there was some sort of convergence here. Um, but it still needed to move that little bit further. And it seems to me that the, the move, the next move beyond really, is to say that it's not just that we're able to second guess other individuals, that's how the social brain works, and it's not even just that we kind of sacrifice our individuality for the sake of a cooperative success, um, it's that we actually are able to think collectively, that two heads are sometimes better than one. So if you imagine the primitive kind of setting of, you know, the Planet of the Apes kind of thing, that, you know, when they've been out all day trying to hunt the woolly mammoth or something, and failing yet again, they come back home a bit dispirited, and they'll say, well, it didn't go very well today, did it? And somebody will say, well, I think we're going about it the wrong way, you know. And somebody who's not even been there, but it's perhaps stirring what little food they got, says, well, I wasn't there, but listening to you, it strikes me that what's going wrong is, you're assuming that they'll all behave in this way, and you're all sticking together, and why don't you try doing that? And somebody else says, yeah, that's worth a try. Let's think that through a bit more. Let's try doing it that way tomorrow. And they go out and try it. And what's more, it works, right? So it's not just that they've sort of sacrificed their individual interests. It's that their interests are genuinely collective. And what they can do is problem solve, solve problems by linking up their brains into a mega brain that's bigger than the sum of the parts. And so by sharing their expertise, their experience, and their capabilities for solving problems, they can actually survive better than they ever would alone, and better than the other group over the hill who aren't so good at working these things out. And so this is what I think the social brain is really essentially about. It's not just that individualistic capability of second-guessing others. It's, it's a capacity to link up with other brains. And again, other creatures just can't do that. They're just not able to do it. 
Now, this is, you know, like a lot of these ideas, it'd be great if you could claim you thought them all up yourself, but then the very thing I'm arguing is we don't, you know. Um, so I'm not going to. And, and in fact, one of the people who's most influential on the position I already found myself at, uh, at, at that time, was of course the person, as I said, that Harry's written a lot about. Um, and as Harry has very clearly explained, it's Lev Vygotsky, um, who argued that it was in communication that social understanding was made available for individual understanding. There's Lev with his uh, daughter Jita, um, who only actually died, died not, not such a long time ago. I was talking to Peter Renshaw, some of you might know he's a professor in, um, in Australia, and he was saying when he first went over to Moscow a long time ago, she was still around and he was at a conference and she invited him back to her house. And he thought, great, this is good, I'm you know, going back. And, and um, she went and, and she introduced her grandson. Um, who, uh, was it his grandson it must have been? No, it must have been hers, I think. I can't remember now. Um, but anyway, her grandson, I think, who was called Lev Vygotsky. And at the end of the evening, nice evening, he drove him home and he, he said, there I was in the car going through Moscow being driven by Lev Vygotsky. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, um, Vygotsky's ideas can be summed up in this way, can't they, for the sake of the argument I'm making anyway. Um, that social activity, which is intermental, meaning it involves many minds, between minds, influences psychological activity, intermental activity. And this is what he was claiming, which made it his distinction from Piaget that he had the correspondence with. They were exact contemporaries, weren't they, in fact? Um, but it wasn't just that simple. It wasn't, I mean, other people, you know, had suggested this kind of thing. It, it was that he actually created a model which was a sort of spiral, a helix. He was suggesting that, that intermental activity, children are born into shared activity, sense-making, a community, um, and this shapes the way they think. Um, but then the point he was making was that this feeds back into the community. So as those children grow and become capable themselves, then they feed back into the social activity the, their own psychological you know, achievements, if you like. And this is why you've got this cultural you know, kind of helix thing moving on into the future in human activity that you don't typically have for other species. Um, and so that was, that was a clever aspect of it. Um, and the other thing that, that, that was relevant was that he used, that, that was for the same model, he was saying that ways of using language influence shape ways of thinking. He suggested when a child has um, learned language, their thinking is transformed forever. Um, and so language was the conduit, the, the medium, the, the, the very thing that was enabling this link between the intermental and the intramental. Um, and again, that it was, it was a spiral or a helix. So that the child's born into dialogue. The child hears, as Derek Edwards suggested, children hear the world being made sense of. They hear people modeling the world in words. They grow, in, they grow into that. And, and they hear it being modelled, if you like, in language around them. And it shapes the way they think. But of course they then put their own thinking into words. That's one of the things they, they can do. Not in any literal simplistic sense, as people like Stephen Pinker seem to think, but, but in, in a way that makes it at least accessible. And this is, this is again the whole spiral of culture and education and so on. So that um, you know, ways of using language, ways of thinking. It's only by th them being related in that way that knowledge becomes shared and exists. So science essentially only happens when those thoughts are shared. So Isaac Newton at my own university um, might have had some great ideas about gravity, but they weren't science when he was sitting under the mythical apple tree thinking about what, what happened. They only became science when he managed to convince at least one other person what he was on about. And that would be through using the language of language and mathematics and so on. And so this is the whole way that, that human culture and human knowledge is in fact developed. So that knowledge isn't just in any obvious sense an individual attribute or an individual possession. 
it actually inevitably and, and, and must be become social for it to be functional in any useful way. So, so we can thank Vygotsky uh, for, for helping us see that, although of course his, his own research didn't, didn't pursue, he wasn't, you know, because of his uh, untimely death, not able to pursue it to some conclusion through, through more studies. But anyway, this, is, this, this all fitted with me, to me, together with these converging ideas from other kinds of psychology and anthropology and so on. Um, and with language, we've also got, uh, in linguistics, or at least in, in um, pragmatics, uh, people like Sperber and Wilson and so on, arguing that, that, that argumentation itself is, is, is a shaping influence on on thinking, that you've got this back two ways of influence on how people think. Um, and that, 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 that argumentation itself can be shown to have this intrinsic kind of a necessary reasoning kind of quality. Um, so what are we getting down to? Well, really the idea that, that language is a, a tool for collective thinking and not just uh, one for sharing information as, as I say as Steven Pinker you know comes up with these ideas like if I isn't it amazing that I can um, that by putting making precise sounds with my mouth I can c cause precise ideas to arrive in your mind well it is amazing because it's not true I mean ask any primary teacher you can give a very precise set of instructions to 20 kids and they all do different things and you know at universities like this there are people down the road still trying to interpret Shakespeare you know reading it and saying I think it means this why if it's in words it must be there the meaning of course it's not this isn't the way it works every time we use language we actually are creating the possibilities for meaning and the person who we're having the conversation with or whatever is using the resources they've got to make sense of them and that's as much a creative uh, experience as, as a literally um, kind of trans uh, transmitting information experience and so we've suggested really that we don't just interact with language we interthink with it um, and that children are born with a capacity to learn and use language but unlike the bees who are born with a capacity the capability to use the bee signing system and whatever children are born with a capacity to learn and use it but their capability has to be learned through social activity and through interaction with others how you use it to get things done that's the crucial difference and so we are by this point, I'm, I'm arguing that, that language is intrinsically connected with thinking, that the development and acquisition of language is intrinsically related to the development of cognition, to cognitive development, um, and that by implication here, if children have to learn how to use language and they do so by their social experience then unlike the bees and other species that, that are hardwired for their communication um, you're going to get some variation because that social experience can vary children with the same capacity potential might not end up with the same capability and so this is this is this is the sort of thing I'm trying to argue now this might seem sort of obvious in a way but it's not is it I mean you've got people like good old Michael Gove still saying and this is an actual quote children naturally learn to talk they don't naturally learn long division so that's what we should be teaching them <laughs> now I had a horrible year about two years ago with the, the national curriculum um, revisions um, because I was invited, uh, to, I was, quotes, in inverted quotes, consulted about the revisions to the national curriculum, you know, as if, as if they really wanted our ideas. And uh, people like me and, and, and Robin Alexander and so on, and, um, and Ruth Miskin and various people. And, um, and we all argued really strongly that speaking and listening should be a really strong part of the, of the primary curriculum, you know, it was obvious. And all the evidence seemed to be there. Um, but but could we get Gove and Gibb to accept this? No. I mean, there were you know other nice quotes like, well, if I hear children talking in a classroom, it's idle chat. You know, really things like that. Um, and of course, 
you know, I mean, actually, it's not quite fair with with with, with those two individuals. But um, but of course, they, they were really arguing that the kind of education that, that should be going on is children being seen and not heard, and sitting and doing like what you're doing now, just listening very patiently and quietly to a teacher and learning in that way. Of course, the kind of schools the Tories send their kids to, like Eton and Harrow and all that, they don't do that. They do a lot of debate. They do a lot of interaction. A lot of small group work. You know, but that's for their kids, not for ours. You know, it's how our lot should be just, you know, sitting quietly and learning the, the skills that will make them good workers, I suppose. Ironically, though, um, being, being able to use language, spoken language, to get things done is, is one of the skills that employers do want now. Anyway, slight digression there. But um, we do know from evidence such as Hart and Risley's, um, and there's some more recent research just been done in Britain, which, which, which uh, confirms the same sort of ideas. What they're essentially saying, if you go into a child's preschool child's home and just record the amount of talk that they're involved in, just the amount, you can make a pretty good prediction about how well they'll be doing at school when they're 14. And if you look at what that talk's like, you can actually make an even better prediction. And this is like uh, Usher Goswam and Peter Bryant summarise some of this for, the, for, for Robin Alexander's primary, uh, you know, the Cambridge Primary Review. And they, they, they picked out things like this, that mothers or carers who have this elaborative style have children with more organised and detailed memories, and mothers who seldom use elaboration and evaluation have children who recall less about the past, suggesting that even working memory can be influenced in a, in a more long-term way by the way mothers and children talk together, mothers or carers, you know. I mean, the sort of thing they're talking about is the difference between, you know, a, a, a parent going down out through the park with a child, and, that one ch and the child says, look, there's some ducks, and the mother says, yeah. Right. Well, going, well, going through the park, with, and, the, and the child says, there's some ducks, and the mother says, oh, yes, how many are there? Can you count them? You know, do you think they're daddy ducks and mummy ducks? You know, when did we see ducks last time? What did we see? What happened last time? Oh, you know, dog chased the ducks or something like that. The child remembers. It's the experience of verbalising these events that makes a child remember them, but also helps create remembering as a more effective thing. Partly as a social attribute, you know, a, a social skill, collective remembering, but also individual remembering. So we know that these things are are, are the case. We also know that. This sounds horribly fatalistic for these children, uh, Hart and Risley stuff. What we can say, and what I always say to, to teachers, you know, or to, to the PGCEs, is what it really tells you is that school is the, the only second chance for some children. To transcend that destiny of the preschool language environment, they've only got you, the, the teacher. And, and because they may not hear, you know, they may not be exposed to other shaping influences that broaden their repertoire. Not like they're not learning useful things to speak in that way, but the repertoire is the issue, not forgetting to do some things, but, but learning more ways of using language. And school may be the only chance. So, we know a lot of different evidence from different sources. One field I looked at a little bit was neuroscience, which is where what Goswami works in now, of course. And from researching neuroscience and, and, and psychology as a whole, we, we, know, we know these kind of things. Stephen Pinker, following that kind of Chomskyan kind of model, tended to, and the sort of uh, the LAD kind of thing, they, they, they would sort of think of language almost as a separate thing from the main brain. It was almost like an app that you kind of got and stuck in, you know. Um, and it was it's completely sort of separate. Um, but in fact, the neuroscience suggests it's not. Usha um, Usha's own stuff has shown, for example, that um, some of the systems, uh, it goes back to some of the research, of course, again, relates to Peter Bryant's research from a long while ago, but, but she's noticed that, that some of the systems that light up, so to speak, um, when, when, you, when you're examining the, 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 activity, the neurological activity, that has to do with understanding speech as it's heard, are the same ones that light up when people are understanding the rhythm of songs uh, or of tunes, suggesting that rhythm 
is, is something that isn't just to do with music or speech, but is in fact, you know, more, more generally uh, located in the brain for, for, for more than one function. And that there are several other things like that that aren't purely linguistic. You've got things, and she even suggests that there are some sorts of dyslexia um, in which people do seem to have trouble with the sequencing of words, the s people tend to also have problems with, 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 with understanding rhythm. We, 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 they tend to be arrhythmic uh, in that sense. And so this is something uh, that these guys have si since, you know, uh, earlier on, uh, I should say, uh, already made a similar kind of claims from working completely independently. Suggesting that the Broca's area, which is to do with speech, is, is, is in fact um, has a much more general function than, than, than might seem to be the case. Um, and so that language itself is in, in, in a way much more integrated with the brain as a whole. So this relates to Vygotsky's ideas um, of language and its functions, uh, and, and especially for its function in, in being the, the way that intermental, intermental activity is related to intramental activity. Another concept that's interesting, I think, is theory of mind. Um, and I, I, I remembered knowing about this from a long time ago as a, as a student, but, um, but it's kind of got a bit more interesting again recently. Um, I'm working with Davy Whitebread and other people who work with, um, with younger children. Um, uh, and, and, and they've become interested in this. Um, I guess you, you understand it, um, that we have this capacity um, to make sense of other people's um, points of view. Perhaps I, for those who, does anybody here not really know the concept very well? Should I explain it a bit more? Does everybody feel? Okay, I want to do that. Okay, it's theory of mind isn't like theory of gravity or evolution. It's not a theory. Uh, it's, 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 it's a notion. It's a concept. And it suggests that to understand your mind, what I need to do is have a theory of it. That is, I have to have some way of thinking, what are you thinking? And that applies to lots of things. And it originally came up, and hence the, the little pictures, in people looking at um, higher apes, at chimpanzees and bonobos and things. And what they wondered was whether chimps had a theory of mind when it comes to other chimps. So they do things like have a banana, and the chimps say, hiding the banana down here, you know. So that only that the chimp saw the banana was hidden. Then they'd let another chimp in the room. Now, if it was a human, you'd know that chimp didn't know that banana was there. It was, it was only it knew. And you'd think it would sit there with a smug smile. But no, in fact it went bananas. <laughs> and, um, and actually started to panic because it thought the other chimp knew that the banana was there. So that's just one example. They had lots of other studies. And on the whole, it seems like the higher apes don't have a very well-developed theory of mind. They can't really imagine what another ape's thinking. Um, in fact, recently there's been some work with birds that suggests that some species of birds seem to have a bit more of it than chimps. But nevertheless, we, through our evolution of our social brain, have developed this <laughs> distinctive capacity I mean, it, it, if you're giving directions to someone on the street, you have to use theory of mind. You know, hence, you know, the, the old joke, well, if I was going there, I wouldn't start from here. But, but if you are starting from here, you, you can't say, well, when you've gone, you know, when you go down there, and it's on the other street from where the church is, so, you no know, point, if they don't know where the church is, you've got to imagine what they do know and don't know. And it's intrinsic to our ability to take part in a, dial a dialogue. Um, and it's hardwired, but the ability has to be learnt. Piaget thought children didn't really develop theory of mind until about 11 or 12. Well, in fact, we actually know they develop it a lot earlier. Um, and we also know from the sort of work that the, the more early years kind of psychologists have done, that social education experience seems to help people develop it. And I'm going to show you a video now, which I think is relevant. Um, it's one from a primary school, an ordinary primary school up in, um, in Northumberland. And it was when I was doing, I was working with the, the QCA on looking at good practice uh, when it came to language work in school. And this was on school we, we picked out because they were doing really interesting things. And um, I think you just have a look at these children and think whether these children who are six, five, six and seven um, have any evidence of, of, of theory of mind. Um, they're actually 
by sheer coincidence, I happen to have the book here uh, for a different reason, that they're actually been reading, which is Katie Morag and the New Peer. Does anybody know the Katie Morag series? Yeah? But this little girl on a Scottish island, um, growing up there, the stories are all about her picture books, very popular with the younger kids, um, but they also, as well as being her life, they have a, a, another theme, a sort of subplot. Might be about the relation between generations, might be about her going to school. In this case, it's to do with them building a new pier, it's to do with conservation and development, the dilemma. And what they do in this, this video you're going to see is they get the children to act roles from their reading of the book. And then you'll see what else happens. There's a bit of voiceover because we created this to show teachers, but most of it's just them speaking. So just have a think about whether you think they uh, show evidence of theory of mind. Yeah, do you remember when we read Katie Morag in the New Pier? And we thought about why some of the people on the island would like the New Pier and why some of them were against it. What you're going to do in a moment is you're going to work with a partner and you're going to decide on the character you want to be. One of is going to be the person who wants to appear, and the other one's going to be the person who doesn't want it. Notice how the children work in role to extend their understanding of the story. They express attitudes and feelings, as well as facts through drama, use the language of speculation and hypothesis, and reflect on the way they have worked in role. Sorry, I didn't mean to do that. Have to go back. <coughs> Sorry. I'll just go. Oh dear. This is me trying to do the wrong thing. I was trying to change the sound quality. Right. Sorry. I, how can I get through it quicker? Any. No. No. All right. It doesn't work. I'm sorry. I'll just have to leave it. I'm very sorry. It's my IT skills, I'm afraid. I was just trying to get the sound quality better. Besides, all the old 
old ways will be forgotten and the modern ways will come in. And I don't want that to happen. Are the old ways better? Well, I like the old, I like the old ways better, to be honest. There must be some people you know, that want the thing. You do. You tell me why. Because I like, I want some more money for my post office. So how would the beer help your post office? I don't understand. More people will come more often to get more food and stuff. All right, is there anybody else? I want the beer because Granny Maiden can come more often and I like her because she's so pleasant. One day she let me try her makeup and she's got posh clothes and that the big boy cousins can come over I like playing chicken belly with them. I like playing, I like being movie free. Well, I don't want it to come because all the big boy cousins will come and play chicken belly and ruin the place. <laughs> but I want the big boy cousins to come over because I like messing up gardens. <laughs> <laughs> it's a lovely, lovely piece of drama about treating more agony than the new peer. How easy is it to beat somebody? Yes. Quite hard because you need to you need to realise if they're happy or sad or angry. You really need to be the proper character and what it she or he is like. Mm. So you've got to think about how they would be. Yeah, not how you feel. Did anybody disagree with what they what they were saying in the drama? Yeah, I did, because I mean, Granny Islands, even if all the old ways will be forgotten, then um, it doesn't matter, because you've just got, because you've got to live with it. I don't think you to have to see it, because that makes, if there was a real ferryman, not have his real work. Mm. So you did agree with the person you were in the drama. You agreed with his arguments. Okay. Right, well I think you can see there that they've got theory of mind, haven't they? They can imagine another point of view, they can even enact that other point of view, they can empathise with it. I think it's all, and, but, but the point to make is this didn't just happen. This was a school where the teachers were doing these kind of activities. We went around lots of other schools and you didn't get six-year-olds or whatever showing that kind of capability so education does make a difference um, and it can develop these kind of skills um, the other thing I think it's worth noticing with Georgia the little girl who's seven with the glasses a couple of things there you, you hear her she pulls this light and then she comes out with a phrase like she says well I like the always better to be honest and then a bit later she says well you've just you've just got to live with it and it's what you would call, um, what I think it's a Bakhtinian kind of notion of, of appropriation, or, or what anthropologists call ventriloquation, where she's hearing, it's like an old head on young shoulders, as my gran used to say. She, she's coming out with something she's heard, because it, it fits, and she's trying it out as a way of making sense of the world. So that's one way you can see the language being used there vicariously, you know, if you like, the, the, from another setting. And we, we, you know, there's, there's lots of research on that kind of thing. Um, so, moving into a more general level. Um, there are six distinctive features of this kind of perspective on learning and, and, and development, I think, um, that I'm trying to argue for. One is that knowledge is not located in people's heads, but also exists in communities. That language enables both collective and individual cognition. That dialogue enables a social mode of thinking. That children's learning is guided and mediated by others. And that there's a reciprocal iterative relationship between individual learning and collective learning in the way that we got suggested. Now, all these are very controversial, but I think if you put them together, they add up to a more powerful set of, 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 of 
features than anyone would do on its own. Um, and another one which I'll come back to is that this process of learning and teaching is a temporal relationship. It's not something that happens and it's not well studied by getting somebody for 10 minutes in a laboratory and saying, do you remember that now? Um, things, you know, you don't sort of say, I don't understand astrophysics. Oh, now I do. You know, it takes forever, can't it? Um, and so it takes time. And, and I haven't thought of a better way of saying that, but I think um, it is, it is a, a, a feature of this, this perspective. Let's just focus on one, about dialogue enabling a social mode of thinking. Um, back in the early days of us looking at children's talk when they were working together at computers back in the 80s, 90s, 80s uh, even, um, we noticed that you could, I guess many of you will be familiar with this kind of, this, 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 this scheme, which is that we noticed there were three kinds of talk going on. I can do a whole session on the three kinds of talk, which I won't do now. Um, but, um, but basically, we noticed quite a lot of that stuff going on Yes it is, no it's not, well you're stupid anyway. And actually I hear that sometimes in staff meetings at Cambridge as well. Um, <laughs> in which everybody just makes their own decisions and speakers don't share ideas or constructively work together. Quite a lot of that going on with people competing rather than being cooperative. Cumulative talk, which is much more useful, kind of brainstorming, sharing, but people just tend to agree and that's all that happens. Um, it doesn't go anywhere towards critical evaluation. And the third kind, which we take in Douglas Barnes's term, we call the exploratory talk, is in which people engage critically with the task, everyone offers the relevant information, their ideas are treated as worth consideration, people give reasons for ideas and, 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 and can be asked for reasons, and you try and reach agreement before you progress. And you can see reasoning, collective reasoning, being visible in the talk. And it seemed to us at that early point that this was the stuff you wanted to happen in classrooms. Um, and it wasn't happening much in groups. This is what people wanted and why people were advocating group work. But in fact what was happening, and still to a large extent is happening, a lot of the other stuff going on. Um, and in fact since then, in the book I wrote with Carol Littleton um, just a couple of years ago, we've actually looked at people working together in completely different settings such as musicians rehearsing together, we've drawn on other people's research to look at government meetings, being uh, decision making being done, designers working in, in laboratory, in um, you know studios, um, various kind of people working online to do things um, and what you can basically see to cut the long story short is exploratory talk is what you need to happen in all those kind of places, a version of it. And so it's an important kind of way of using language that does typify into thinking, people thinking collectively. Well, just to show, so I can just talk a bit more about, about what we think is happening when in this move between the collective thinking to the individual thinking, between the intermental and the instrumental, I'll just seize on one uh, kind of particular line of studies that I've been involved in, which again many of you may know of. These are the people who have been involved in it mainly. Um, and really what we tried to do was see if we could get them to use more exploratory talk and if it had any beneficial effects, um, as, as we've put number two there. We wanted to see if it helped them individually, not just to think better collectively, but, but also to see if it helped their, their reasoning individually and their learning individually. And so we were helping all, you know, Lev out by doing some of the research that he might not have been able to do himself. Now, one of the particular studies um, is this one. Um, and this is what it was about. It was on science and maths. And it was a comparison, a control comparison between um, target classes, experimental classes, and the control over two years. And we were comparing the effects of an intervention aimed at improving, in increasing the amount of exploratory talk the children used the effects on their talk, on their reasoning test scores, and on their science and maths. So this was in a way to see whether using the social brain, though we didn't put it that way then, to reason collectively influenced the development of the individual brain for reasoning alone. And the main aspect of the intervention that we did was 
to get children to agree a set of ground rules for how they work together, which are just that definition of exploratory talk turned into a set of norms for how we will behave when we're in groups. And the way we did this, the, the teacher didn't just impose them. I mean, when I'm working with a group of teachers uh, in a workshops and stuff, you sort of say, well, what do you think would make a good discussion? And then we'll come up with a lot of these things. Um, if you ask children, quite a few of the ideas will come out from what they say. That doesn't mean they're doing them. Because what they're often doing in group work is following a different set of ground rules. It's not like they don't have any. Ground rules exist everywhere. This is, the ground rules that are making this event happen are, are completely invisible and tacit, aren't they? It's a lecture, so you're following the ground rule. I will sit quietly, I will make notes, I won't speak myself. If I look at my mobile phone, I'll do it very surreptitiously. <laughs> and I'll let the guy at the front do all the talking. Somebody at the back could suddenly stand up and give another lecture. Might be more interesting, but we'd all be shocked because the ground rules were being broken. Well, in some groups, children are using ground rules like, if I've got a good idea, I'll keep it to myself, because then I'll get a better mark. Or they're using ones like, well, if he's my friend, I'll always agree with him, whatever he says. Or, if I don't like them, I'll always disagree with them, etc., etc. So, what we get them to do is to agree a set of ground rules that we think will m create more exploratory talk. And th at the beginning of the intervention, early on, the teacher will... Revi review these ground rules with the children at the beginning of doing group work. What do we have to do to make sure that the whole group has gone? Emma, we have to agree, the whole group needs to agree. She's doing very typical teacher talk, isn't she? You know, elaborating what the child says and, and repeating itself. Uh, it's quite a sort of closed questioning session, but it's got a very definite function. What kind of things right we might hear each other saying? What do you think? What do you think? Yeah. What's your idea? What is your idea? Brilliant. What's your idea? Why do you think that? Excellent. Well done. So she's just reminding them of this. It's a very it's instruction. It's, it's, you know, they're not discovering these rules to themselves. They're being taught how to use talk effectively in groups. If that's on the 1st of March. If you look a month later and we look at a bit of a group, you'll actually see them using these things. But a bit like Georgia in the video, it's a bit of ventriloquation to some extent. They're almost kind of just reading them out, which because the ground rules will be on the walls. What do you think? Yes, four. And, but they're doing it, but it's nevertheless, why do you think that? And you're getting a real reasoned answer because, but nevertheless, it's got that kind of quality. If you follow them through to a month or so later, what you actually get is the children by now have really appropriated the ground rules and they've done so semantically or pragmatically, they're not just stuck at the surface level of the words. They're saying, do you agree? What do we do now? What do you think we should do? They're asking real questions, but based on the ground rules. What can we remember? Things like this. And so you see this happening in the talk. We can actually see that starting to happen. And we can start seeing it happen more. Um, oh, I was going to show a video, uh, but uh, given the sound quality is not so good, I probably won't, of these children doing it. I'll show a very, very brief bit, but the sound quality is not so good, having heard it. You can just hear a bit of it, and you can sort of see the kind of interaction that should go on. picture they're all contributing they're giving reasons they're summing up what Jesus is saying and so on what we found was by using things like this kind of concordance software to hunt for words such as I think we can hunt because is we can hunt anything in the electronic text we can check from 
the way it displays it, it's not just something saying because, 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 because. We can go back between the qualitative and quantitative measures of this and we can look and see whether the quality of the talk changes. And what we find is, looking at that particular class, that it does. That some of these words, which we see as the key indicator words, increase significantly in their use over the time of the intervention. So that becauses and I thinks in particular go up. Things like could are so small that you can't really use them. But you can imagine with the whole set of the classes, we can start to see whether you get a general improvement. And we can compare those with the control classes. <coughs> and what we found was that compared with the control classes, the children did begin to use more exploratory talk. They became better at solving problems together. What's more, they improved their individual scores on a Raven's progressive, progressive matrices, uh, a test of nonverbal reasoning, more so than the controls. Um, and they also gained better scores on the, um, uh, on the curriculum assessments that, that we gave them as well. So, so what we actually found was, in fact, that you got better use of talk for interthinking, but you also got an, imp an impact in the Vygotskyan predictive way on their individual thinking. Um, now, what explanations can we have for this? Um, well, one is the word I've used already. It could be that the children are just learning good, successful problem-solving strategies from each other. So, so they learn how to do these various tasks like the one you saw there in maths together. And they notice that he does it a certain way. And they say, oh, that's good, I'll remember that, and I'll do it myself. So when they're on their own, they do it themselves. And the same would apply to doing the Raven's progressive matrices, for which the control classes and the individual classes are just the same amount of exposure to. But one lot were using exploratory talk, and one lot were using much less of it. So they might just pick up individual ways you know, from another individual. In that sense, it's like the Steven Pinker idea, it's just transmission of information. And a way that's slightly more complicated is this two heads are better than one. Is that they, by using talk to share and coordinate their efforts, the children can construct new explanations for solving a problem or completing a task that they wouldn't have got on their own. Perhaps each contributes a different idea and they add up to something better. Or somebody's done some bit of knowledge that's relevant, somebody's got another bit that's relevant. Perhaps they even have some conflict, the socio-cognitive conflict idea, which is kind of neo-Piagetian idea, that by, by hearing another idea, they have to reappraise their own. And so in the end, if they agree, which they're meant to do by the ground rules, they'll end up with a new understanding, which none of them would have had individually before. And they can apply that to any new tasks. So that's an interesting kind of explanation for what we were getting there, and what might happen in similar situations. But there is another one, which would be even more interesting if it was the case. And this is that by getting involved in reasoned discussion of exploratory talk, that is being involved in a form of reasoning, a dialogic form of reasoning, they become transformed in the way they reason individually. And this is the kind of explanation that people like Rupert Wegriff have put forward for the importance of group work that individuals may come to think more dialogically. And if you think that's what an, an educated person sort of does, now in some circumstances, they sort of have an internal dialogue. Well, on the one hand this, on the other hand that, have I thought of all the pros and cons? And so it's possible that by being involved in this very effective interthinking of exploratory talk, the individuals actually become more able to think and reason dialogically, and that is accounts for their improved uh, reasoning on the on the on the on the uh, progressive matrices. Now we don't actually know from the results we've got to what extent each of these explanations is 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 relevant. We we know that that one can't be the whole explanation because we can see what things individuals have explained to each other, and it doesn't account for the improvements. So it's it's down. I mean, some of that will happen, but, but it's down to something between these two. And yet this one is a more exciting one in a way, because it really is arguing that, that by being involved in social, in intermental reasoning activity, you become transformed in the quality of your in, intra-intermental reasoning. Um, 
Well, is there evidence to support this whole theory, this whole approach of, of this kind of more radical interpretation of the social brain and it's how it brings together the, the language education, teaching and learning and, and culture. I could have added more words there. Well, there's quite a lot. Um, and a, a variety of studies have linked the quality um, of language use to academic achievement. I've mentioned some of them. But we probably do need more evidence it's awful, isn't it, at the end when researchers say what we need is more research, you know. But, but we do in some ways. Um, if we really want to convince some people, like Michael Govenkov, that it's actually, you know, that important that children are involved in, in high quality talk in, in, in various ways in classrooms. So what might, might, might we want to know other, as well as that? Well, I think one thing that will be interesting, and some neuroscientists like Frith have all, already mentioned this possibility, you know, there's this thing about mirror neurons when people sort of see something happening, uh, like somebody playing tennis and the same bits of their brain kind of light up. It's to do with intentionality though, and it's quite complicated. It would be interesting to see whether if people are involved in exploratory talk, if we get neuroscience down to a level it's nothing like at the moment, whether if you're involved in exploratory talk, you've got some mirroring of, of bits lighting up in the brains, if you like, of the partners to show that interthinking is going on. We also want to know more about how you can enable learning and development through classroom talk. We know quite a lot, but we have just got, we've just got an ESRC project um, starting in June uh, in which we're going to do that from an observational study involving about 80 teachers. I also heard on the grapevine that Robin Alexander, who's now at York, um, has, has actually got a, a randomised control trial study funded by the EF to do something similar. Um, it would be interesting to know which kind of collaborative activities are most useful for enabling conceptual development and development of reasoning. We know a lot from just distilling what good teachers do. I mean, that's the way we work generally. People sometimes think we're kind of ivory tower people who think up these things and get teachers to do them. It's really the opposite way around. We try and see what teachers are doing that's effective and then try and build that into an intervention. But we could do with a bit more precision on that. And therefore we could answer questions like this to do with social inequality and so on and to see whether we can make opportunities happen for children that don't happen at the moment. Um, and, and then we might just possibly convince these people. There's only convincing in Singapore. I've been out there quite a bit recently and, and they're fully convinced. It's just here um, and some other places. So that's it really. Um, oh yeah, and we are setting up a, a new centre in Cambridge um, called TalkWorks at the College Hughes Hall, which will in fact be, as much as anything, meant to be the interface between policymakers and researchers um, and practitioners. Not, not a research centre as such, but, but more this kind of interface kind of centre. Um, so that's it. I thought I'd leave you with a little picture of the other place. Um, that's Hughes Hall itself. Um, and these are two of the articles, uh, two of the, the publications that are most relevant. Right, sorry for going on slightly longer.